Hello, I'm Jason Solomons, and welcome to the latest edition of Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. In this month's show... We're looking for a Jewish mum for the 21st century. No, do it in the black so we can see. You Stop don't have to do it, but you don't have to do the, the glitter. But just use your common sense a little bit. British Jewish mothers face reality. Yiddish curses on Jews who dare to vote Republican. May your insurance company decide constipation is a pre-existing condition. And the continuing legacy of the Holocaust. The number on my arm, it's 157622. It's the most important thing I did in my life. All Jewish life is here. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. And joining me on Sounds Jewish this month is Naomi Grin, writer, filmmaker, commentator and soon-to-be Jewish mum. Muscle tough. congratulations. That's a hell of a bun you've got in your oven. Is that a holler? Well, thank you, Jason. Uh, she's due on October the 31st, a Halloween baby. But if it gets too exciting in the studio, who knows? She might not know she's on schedule. We'll keep you calm. Uh, we were watching Channel 4's Jewish Mum of the Year uh, just now. Did you get any useful tips for the future on that? Do you think it's too early for me to be a contender? No, I think you're already one. <laughs> It's one of the most sinister and enduring images of the Holocaust, the serial number tattoo branded on most of the inmates at Auschwitz. Over 70 years on, as these survivors are dwindling in number, their descendants are finding new and some might say shocking ways of keeping those fading memories alive, as 21-year-old Elie Sagir told the New York Times online. The number on my arm, it's 157622. It's the most important thing I did in my life. I did the tattoo when I was 17. I asked my grandfather first. He said, why? You are so young, you are a child. Why you want to do this awful number on your hand? When my grandfather saw the tattoo first, he started to cry and he kissed my hand. It was a very emotional moment. And I told him I want to keep him in me. People ask about it a lot. Every day, minimum 10 times. My generation don't take the Holocaust seriously enough. So I said to them, it's to keep my grandfather and the Holocaust survivor alive. I can't tell my grandfather's story. Now, this remarkable phenomenon is tackled by a new Israeli documentary, Numbered, that premieres later this month at the Chicago International Film Festival. Dana Doron is one of the co-directors of the film, herself a granddaughter of a survivor, and she joins me now on the line from Tel Aviv. Dana Doron, welcome to Sounds Jewish. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, you're a doctor in real life, so what made you decide to make a documentary on this subject? Uh, Hi, and thank you for having me on on your show. Uh, Well, I am a doctor, and a patient got me started on this subject. I was actually working in an ER in the north of Israel, and an elderly patient came in complaining of chest pain, and I went up to her to examine her, and she wouldn't speak of her chest pain and her complaints. She just showed me her arm with a number on it and asked me if I knew what that number meant. And it made me really very sad that an older woman would feel the need to ask a young person in Israel if they knew what the number meant. 
And after about an hour, her daughter came to the ER and came up to me and said, I'm so very sorry. Whenever my mother needs to talk, she goes to the ER, grabs someone who looks young, shows them the number, asks them if they know what this means, and then this, she just goes on and on because no one listens to her at, ho- at home anymore. And I was left with this story, and this it was a very uh, strong experience for me. Basically, after I met this woman in the ER, I was very troubled, and I approached Uriel, the guy who made the movie with me, and he's a photojournalist. And I came up to him, and I said, we have to do something. Let's just uh, locate the last people who still bear this number from Auschwitz and, and just interview them and get portraits. People knew that uh, both of us were running around asking for interesting anecdotes about the numbers, and then we started hearing that there were actually younger people also getting the numbers done on their arms, which at first shocked us. And then we just we wanted to, co- to contact them and, and ask them what what they were thinking. So when you and when you heard that that the young people were were getting those tattoos, you you found it shocking because you thought it was uh, it, it was an insult to the memory. It's just shocking because the original meaning of this symbol or this scar. Uh, from the war is the meaning that the Nazis gave to it, which was it, it was used to erase a person's identity and to make it more uh, affordable and easier to to burn them and cremate them and gas them and, and totally um, disregard their humanity. To hear that people are choosing now as an act of remembrance or commemoration or exhibitionism, I don't know what, each person has his own diverse causes, but to to have this number done on them and to in a way commemorate the Nazis' way of thinking is is weird. But as you delve de- as you delve deeper, you 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 found um, that that it was the relatives of, of survivors who were who were keeping their memories of of, of their grandparents and, and parents, I suppose, uh, alive in some way through that uh, connection with the number. Uh, one of the people we, we, we interviewed and we, we shot in the movie is a uh, daughter of a survivor, and she felt the need to get the tattoo done af- right after he passed away. She felt it was a need to bond with him and his experiences that he never spoke about when she was a girl. And we actually went with her to the tattoo shop downtown in Tel Aviv, and we saw her, we filmed her getting that tattoo done. And again, the clash of cultures and meanings was so unbearable there because the tattoo guy, who is a Russian immigrant, and he doesn't know much about Israeli society, I guess, he asked her if she wanted to have butterflies or flowers uh, in the tattoo along with the number. And she looked at him and said, well, I think it's the Holocaust, so maybe not. So so let's just be straight. So that she was getting a sort of exact replica of that tattoo, the right numbers in, in the sort of same the same kind of... They're kind of rough. They're not kind of beautiful. I mean, obviously, think, people think of tattoos now all over Israel in body art. Uh, they, they, this is not embellished in any way, the, the way these tattoos are being done. Are they in the same place as their grandparents were? Uh, most of the people choose to get them done on, this, uh, on their left arm, as it was done in Auschwitz. Uh, those tattoos are not embellished. I, I, I haven't seen one that is too aesthetic, though right today the technology of getting a tattoo is different than what was used with uh, iodine and, a, I don't know, a needle in Auschwitz. But how many people did you discover uh, are doing this? Is it, is it a significant number? Is it, is it a, a trend that has shocked Israel? When we started working on, on the movie, Unnumbered, it was in 2009, which is three years ago. 
And back then, uh, we heard of one person who did this, and we were shocked. And when we spoke to him, he said that most people react very strongly to his tattoo and are also quite shocked and ask him, why the hell and what were you thinking and what, what will your grandparents say? But in the last two years, we've had more and more people come up to us and tell us about a friend they met who had the number done. And um, I think in total, we spoke to about uh, 10 people, or, and we know of a few more um, in, the, in the entire project. So, What, what, did, the gra- I, I, what did the grandparents feel uh, when, they, when they saw that their, their grandchild was doing this? Uh, it's a very, it's mixed reactions, uh, diverse reactions, but none of them are, uh, they're very strong reactions. Some were very proud and happy and felt that it was a way to commemorate them. We heard when we started uh, doing research on the movie, we heard from uh, people um, who asked to be buried and have on their tombstone the number etched as their name. So I guess people who felt that it was a part of their identity felt it was a very big tribute to them and the memory. Uh, others were horrified and and did not want to see that number on their kid or their grandson. We interviewed over 50 survivors all in all, and many of them are featured in the movie, and each one has a very different perspective. As an individual who is living in Israel and thinking about the subject, the, the more I came to know the um, the people who chose to get the tattoo done, the more I admired their decision. Because I, I think each person ca- came to this decision from a very private, personal place. We are very, very uh, curious to know if this phenomena of younger people getting the tattoo is just an Israeli phenomena, because there, there's a lot of survivors with tattoos who went and lived across the world. So if anyone's out there with a tattoo and is a descendant of a Holocaust survivor, please Find us on Facebook, our page is numbered, and tell us your story because we want to integrate it in the larger picture of the numbered project, please. Dana, Doron, thank you very much for joining us. Good luck with your film. I know it premieres in Chicago, which will be a whole new audience. I can't wait to, to, for the film to come to the UK. Naomi Grin is in the studio with me still and was listening to that interview with uh, Dana Doron. Uh, Naomi, your father, Hugo Grin, a much loved and respected rabbi in this country, originally from, from what is now Ukraine, uh, he wasn't interned at... Auschwitz, I believe. Did he have a number tattoo? Well, when he was deported in 1944 from Subcarpathian Ruthenia, which was at that point in Hungary, right. there were so many people rounded up and taken to Auschwitz at which once. was in the last throes of it, the kind of real... May uh, yeah. 44, mm. that they didn't have time to tattoo everyone. So he picked up a tattoo later on in his year as a, as a prisoner, which he later had removed surgically. Um, but um, a lot of the people, he was only in Auschwitz for a few weeks um, before they were sent off to a labour camp in Silesia. But do you remember his tattoo as a child? Did you ever see no, it? No, he had it uh, removed before I was a sentient being. Re- really quite quickly? Um, it used to give him um, headaches and nightmares and he said he could, when he saw it he could smell um, burning flesh. So... Um, it came off. Uh, did he discuss that number with you? Did it? What, did it leave a scar anyway on the removal? Um, there was a little, slightly lighter skin. Um, we talked about um, his camp experiences a lot. Um, certainly, tattooing was something that was completely verboten, mm. um, not just because of uh, Jewish law against it, but also because it connected to um, the Nazi 
use of tattoos. Uh, so you know, I'm I'm still shocked actually every time I see a tattoo. Sometimes they look very attractive, mm. you know, when people have Maori designs. Yeah. But of course, my first thought is always of um, a number. Can you understand now, listening to that uh, interview about numbered the film? Uh, why a younger generation might be doing it that it is now sort of, I suppose, softened up to the tattooer's body art in a way. Well, there is, of course, the fashion of tattooing and what else can you think of putting on your body that could shock? Um, but what troubles me about it is the idea that um, these young people, I would imagine, are motivated to want to help process um, relatives who were Holocaust um, survivors or, or to somehow help alleviate the burden of their um, of their pain, um, and yet at the same time, it seems to me that this is such a stark case of over identification to the point where you're not helping them process their story, but you're trying to make the story your own. Right. And the fabulous thing is that anybody born after 1945 has not experienced, um, hopefully, not experienced starvation and and all the degradation. Although they're quite often termed, in in politically correct way, second and third generation survivors. In in a way, it it does keep that memory alive. We heard from the girl Ellie, who keeps, uh, who is asked ten times a day what that tattoo means, and she. Clearly sounds like a, she's a 21-year-old, but she sounds very capable of retelling her grandfather's story. Um, well, I just wonder um, at what point does one move on and allow um, the what happened to Jews during the Holocaust to become something historical. I find the term second and third generation very troubling um, because it, it makes it as if there's some victim status that can go beyond a generation. And although I... I have heard elsewhere that you, uh, traumatic memory um, can persist in the DNA. Surely one wants to celebrate survival and not uh, cling on to uh, victimhood. Um, I think you know, things like Yom HaShoah are a brilliant idea. That's the, the Memorial Day, Memorial for Holocaust. So for one day a year, you should really focus on it in the same way that you do a yard site for the anniversary of the death of um, a family member. So instead of being in mourning all the time, you move on, you live a gl- glorious life, you, you celebrate your, your survival, your being here, um, but never, um, you never completely forget those that can't be here too. You're listening to Sounds Jewish from The Guardian, sponsored by the Jewish Community Centre for London. With the US elections just a few weeks away and polls tightening, both Obama and Romney still have their work cut out persuading voters to place their trust in them. But one group whose support has never been in question is Jewish Americans. Polls show up to 70% of backing for Obama, such as the Jewish opposition to the Republican Party. And despite Mitt Romney taking a hawkish position on Iran, it's done little to peel Jewish voters away from the Democrats. However, never taking too much for granted, Jewish Democrats have now come up with a set of Yiddish-style curses aimed at those Jews daring to contemplate a vote for Romney. Our very own Yiddish Meister, Dave Schneider, gives us a little taster of those curses. May your son, the doctor, introduce you to his fiancée, Bristol Palin. May you live to 120 without Social Security or Medicare. 
May your accountant be as honest as Paul Ryan, and may your children be as compassionate towards the elderly and infirm. May the secretary your husband is stooping depend on planned parenthood for her birth control. May you sell everything and retire to Florida, just as global warming makes it uninhabitable. May your son be elected president, and may you have no idea what you did with his goddamn birth certificate. May your insurance company decide constipation is a pre-existing condition. Strong stuff there, and thanks to David Schneider as ever. Naomi Grin is still in the studio with me, but we're joined now by Mark Gettleson, an elections and polling analyst focusing on British and American politics and following the American election on Twitter assiduously. Welcome to Sounds Jewish, Mark. Um, November the 6th is the big day building up to it. Uh, Jewish Americans, they're going to go with the Democrats mainly, aren't they? Uh, Given that, with the exception of one election, since 1924, Jewish Americans have vastly lopsidedly favoured the Democrats, even in elections where almost no one else did, yes, Jews will be behind Democrats and behind President Obama in droves. What's the reason for them being so solidly behind the Democrats? I think there are lots of complicated reasons, um, mostly linked in with the Jewish experience in the United States. Um, And it all goes back to sort of the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the sort of backgrounds that Jewish Americans came from and where they settled. They settled in heavily democratic, heavily unionized uh, places in the Northeast, like New York, like Philadelphia. And they unionized within the textile industry, and they they ended up running unions in these areas and becoming a really important part of the Democratic coalition, particularly under FDR. And then you had the liberation movements, particularly in the 50s and 60s, where Jews played a very prominent role in civil rights. And in any, in any liberation campaign in the United States, whether it's civil rights, gay rights, etc., Jews have been at the forefront. And they've, had, and they've had a liberality of spirit around that, largely, I think, because they've found themselves living in areas that are left-wing themselves. Jews aren't aren't enormously more left-wing than their neighbours. They happen to live in areas that are generally left-wing. And is America probably the the country where they're most solidly always voting one way? Yeah, I think, I mean, the the country I compare it to is the UK, where actually Jews show a hugely disparate voting patterns, largely dependent, again, on where they live. Jewish, uh, Jewish communities in London who live in Boreham Wood or Radlett vote Conservative like everyone else in Boreham Wood and Radlett, more or less as a general rule. Um, obviously, that changes as you, move, as you move further into London. But in America, they settle in cosmopolitan, liberal places. Now, you'd have thought that America's alliance to Israel would have been a strong determining factor in the way that Jews vote. Is that the case? Uh, no, it's not the case. And only a very... I mean, the... the uh, AJC, the American Jewish uh, Committee, have done a huge amount of polling on this over the years. They found that actually uh, Israeli issues come up uh, relatively, relatively low on the scale uh, for Jewish voters. Jewish voters are interested in the things that most other voters are interested in, in terms of the economy uh, and jobs. But what they're particularly interested in is equality and social equality. And Jews in America have a huge social concern, a need for, you know, strong public services and welfare programs that can look after the poorest. In my view, voters back identity and parties more than they necessarily back specific policies. But Obamacare is popular amongst Jewish voters. They understand the need for a healthcare care service. Um, 
you know, Medicare, very popular amongst Jewish voters. And actually, Paul Ryan and the Ryan plan is an absolute disaster if you want to win Jew- elderly Jewish votes in South Florida. These are, broadly speaking, progressive, older voters who quite like their health care. Thank you very much. Yes, I mean, it goes back to that, that Yiddish curse that we heard from David Schneider exactly. earlier. And I remember Sarah Silverman, not long, uh, in the last election, yeah. had, she, she did a great internet viral campaign. The great to get, schlep. The great schlep to get young Jews to go down from New York to visit their elderly relatives in Florida to show them that, you know, that if they didn't kind of, you know, vote vote Democrat, they would be, uh, you know, cast asunder. I think that that was, I mean, that was hugely successful. Obviously, Obama won the state of Florida just by a few, by a few percentage points. The Jewish vote unquestionably swung the state of Florida in the last election and may well do so, may well do so again this time. Naomi. What about somebody like Sheldon Adelson, um, the casino magnate in, uh, in Las Vegas? What's his agenda? Well, his agenda is a haw- incredibly hawkish uh, foreign policy for America in defence of Israel because Sheldon Adelson is actually quite interesting because he is a social liberal. I believe he is a, um, like the Koch brothers, he is a supporter of gay marriage, for instance. But his number one issue, bar none, is Israel. Now, he is the exception. He is the exception, and he happens to be an exceptionally wealthy exception who can give a huge amount of money. But I've no doubt that there are, you know, thousands upon thousands of Jews who've donated in much, much smaller amounts to the Obama campaign. So support for Israel, has, can, that, can that produce a, a huge swing at all? Has it, ever, has it ever made a swing? Or is it, you know, the social issues, that, as, you, as you mentioned before, that are on the ground kind of local issues that are much more important to Jews voting in America? You, you have to remember that the Jewish community in America is actually quite different in a religious and ideological terms to the Jewish community here. It is less orthodox less conservative and actually on Israel it's not so clear cut as I think it might be for instance in this country Um, you know if you are a reformed Jew if you are a liberal Jew even if you're a small c conservative Jew in the United States you won't necessarily take as hard nearly as hard line as uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu would on Iran for instance. So Romney's strong support for Israel and a hard line position on Iran it's not going to have much sway? Well I'm not sure it's used to talk to Jews I think it's used to talk to evangelical Christians who are far more interested in these issues than Jews are um, in terms of firing up his Republican base in places like in places like southeastern Ohio, rural Ohio, very, very important for Romney, rural Virginia, at a time when actually in both those states, particularly in Virginia, where the expansion of Jewish communities in northern Virginia um, in particular is helping Democrats win elections in those sort of traditionally Republican areas. Uh, Mark Gettleson, thank you very much indeed. Uh, looking forward to November the 6th, no doubt. Thanks so much for joining us on Sounds Jewish. Okay, time for some more, shall we say, lively conversation from Channel 4's Jewish Mum of the Year show. Here are two of the most colourful and clashing Jewish mums on display, Ruth and Emma, given the task, apprentice style, of sorting out goodie bags for a bar mitzvah. I've personalised about 40 balloons, approximately. It takes a long time, so I think I should blow up without a name. Yes, just do it. Okay, let's just do it. But no, because okay. then I won't be able to scribble on the bag. You have to, I know so about, but you have to scribble on the name on a bag. Otherwise, how, how do you know what the trousers belong to who? If it's got no name in, it doesn't Ladies, matter. There's no point but arguing. The name Let's just get on something. Let's oh, just get yeah, something sure. ready for 20 minutes, please. Thank you. No, do it in a black so we can see. You don't have to do. But you don't have to do the glitter. But just use your common sense a little bit. 
<laughs> I thought actually as reality television goes, it went. I mean, I'm, I've never been a great fan of the genre, but I thought that they did really well as a reality TV show. And what was it, how did you feel seeing seeing Jewish mums on there? I mean, you, you had one yourself. I've, I've got one. Well, they were certainly playing up to some stereotypes, but, you know, the stereotypes don't turn up from nowhere. Uh, what's a Jewish mum for you? What was your Jewish mum like? Well, I had two Jewish mothers, both my mother and my father, and um, they were both... Well, my father was probably the more anxious of the parents. My mother was incredibly gutsy, would let us be out all hours of the day and night, cycle, by, uh, you know, go out on the streets. She was fearless, um, but he was the stereotypical Jewish parent. I mean, if, one, if one's looking at this stereotype that they were trying to convey, there was something about the cloying, overprotective mother. Um, I liked the two women who were making a cake because they didn't care that much. Um, they were just doing it because it was a gas and they were involved in, in yeah, the game. Yeah, they had to make the bar for cake. And what Jewish mum, incidentally, would let a TV show organise their son's bar mitzvah for them? Oh, That's not a very exactly. Mom. Yeah, that that did feel like the most daring thing of all, <laughs> and have somebody else decide on the hors d'oeuvres and who thinks of having gazpacho soup as an hors d'oeuvre at a bar mitzvah party? I like it was gazpacho. Yeah, <laughs> class. Adi Ness is one of Israel's leading photographers, but he brings a unique outsider's perspective to his work. Born of Iranian parents in Israel and openly gay, he first made his name exploring sexual identity in his early series, Soldiers and Boys. Now he's focused his lens on a fictitious village in the Jezreel Valley in northern Israel, playing with images of early Zionism and identity. His latest exhibition, The Village, has just opened at the Jewish Museum in Camden, North London, where it also forms part of the larger Freeze Art Fair here in London. I caught up with Addy as he was hanging the last of his large-scale photographs, and I began by asking him to what extent his fictitious village was based on real life in Israel. This project is a, is a fiction, like most of my photographs are not real, but they're based on, on real stories and real, uh, real adventures. Uh, the village is a metaphor of Israel, a small place that was built after a tragedy and the people are beautiful and the trees are fruitful and the fields are green. Uh, but in a, in a way, the tragedy always, the, the death foreshadowing everything. The, the, the death lingers everywhere like it's happened in many of my works, like, like it was in The Last Supper and many other works. And and I thought that uh, that there there will be many opposites in this in this village between between the group and the and the and the um, uh, the person between between old and, and young between closed and open places, tragedies uh, appear everywhere. For example, in the picture of the messenger, the soldiers who tells the the, the, the mother the yeah, come. Let, let's walk to that that particular picture. It's an extremely powerful uh, photograph. Here. If you could just explain, I'll explain. There's a there's a young female soldier and a male soldier, and they're talking to a. Uh, a couple. Uh, it's hard to know whether they're giving them news or getting news, if they're coming or if they're going. Just tell us about the the making of this photo and the and the message behind it. All of, all of the pictures in in my exhibitions are untitled, so so the, the picture is untitled. But if I I had to give a name for the for this picture, I was. Uh, call it uh, uh, the Annunciation, uh, uh, 
Uh, and it's, uh, it's the same moment, the moment uh, uh, when, when uh, the angel uh, touched Mary and tell her that she's going to be pregnant with, with Christ, it's the same moment that the, 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 the messenger tells the mother uh, uh, into daily life that her son is not going to come back from, from the ward. And, and like I, I told you before, the, there are many opposites in, in this uh, 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 project. The, the moment that life begins, it's the same moment that life uh, ends. And I think for every Israeli father uh, uh, to send his child to the army, he feels that he repeats the, the, the binding again, uh, the sacrifice again. It's, it's always in the air. And this is a scene that presumably many villages in Israel will have unfortunately experienced. Yes, it's part of our life. You're the child of immigrants from Iran, is that right? Yes. Yeah. yes. Did they did they come, go to Israel with a Zionist image of the place? I mean, I don't know if that's something that you, you grew up with or it's a different clash that you have with your, your own parents. As someone who grown up in a, in a small town, a gay, a gay child, very sensitive, different from the others, the way that I'm I'm looking at the world, you know, it 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 started from my childhood. I always will will look at the world in in, a, in the eye of the uh, a Sephardic uh, a young uh, child, a uh, gay in the periphery of of Israel. I will always look from the outside on the center, and it, and it's also it's 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 a point of view of the of the photographer or of the artist. Usually, artists look at the world in the, in this kind of of way and and uh, uh, I think uh, you know my, my parents came to Israel in the 50s of course they were a, a Zionist and and uh, uh, and the you know they married in, in Israel uh, my, my mother was very young so I'm not speaking uh, Persian but uh, but uh, uh, the, the culture that they uh, brought to, to Israel that was denied for many years the Sephardic uh, culture is is part of my of my visual uh, language in, in a way this picture here Addy, it intrigues me. There's uh, three women um, a, a, and a, a sort of rather uh, a, a naked man. I think he's just, he is wearing underpants. And the, the, the two women are naked, and one one is wearing knickers. Uh, but this looks like a beigneur's to me, a classic uh, beigneur's. Is, is this a ritual bath? Is this a, is this a mikvah? This is not a mikvah. This is um, it's a kind of a, of a spring. Uh, in the, in, I, I took most of the pictures here in the Jezreel Valley. Where, where in about? The north of Israel. It's part of the Israeli culture. Most of the uh, Israeli novels and and uh, uh, also pop songs uh, from my childhood, you know, dealt with these uh, locations. Uh, and uh, many of the Bible uh, episodes ha- happen in this uh, charge uh, places. And the Israeli novels, when when they're writing about this place. Um, usually, uh, the place uh, when the farmers started to to establish Israel in those uh, uh, moshavs and, and kibbutz, they, they dry the, the land because of the water. Uh, and and whenever you dig the, the the ground in this place, suddenly the the unconscious come out, and the water are are getting up. That's how why I chose this location. You mentioned the spring there. We're getting a lot of bubbling up in a way that your your pictures scratch at the surface of modern Israeli society. We're getting a lot of tension between, I suppose, establishment and and, and in some way rebellion. Your your pictures are, have a crackling tension between the characters and the spaces in there. Is that your reflection of Israel? 
this is my reflection, first of all, of art. Art starts from the conf confrontation, from, from different of, of, of uh, things that meet. The, the dramatic point is very important for every piece of, of art, and I'm, I'm trying to, to create this conflict in my, in my photographs because it, it gives something to the, to the image. And, and of course, it's, it's part of, of the Israeli life. That's how we've we, we grown up in, in this place. And Adi Ness's exhibition, The Village, is at the Jewish Museum in Camden until February 2013. Plenty of time to get down there to see it. Uh, Naomi Grin, did it strike you as representative of Israel? Is it an Israel you knew? Um, well, it was a twist on it. Um, he obviously really enjoys narrative. I knew that each image I was looking at had a whole story going on behind it. And I hope that people will go and see it in large numbers. It really made me think um, uh, in a different way about uh, Israeli rural life. Yes, which is kind of, you know, because some of it is, is brutal. There's very much a kind of muscularity to it. Brutal good word for it and timeless as well you know you when you go around the Galilee you feel that um, it's, it's um, a, a way of life that's been carrying on for for thousands of years and I think he conveyed that very nicely with in a very contemporary medium of high definition photography beautifully lit and beautifully staged but yet at the same time the essence that came through was eternal that's all for this edition of Sounds Jewish. My thanks to Naomi Grin, Mark Gettleson, Adi Ness, Dana Duron and Dave Schneider for his Yiddish-style curses. Thanks to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. From me, Jason Solomons, and my producer, Sarah Peters, on this packed edition of Sounds Jewish. Goodbye, and we'll see you next time. Shalom, shalom.